Lechem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Hankus Netsky. Hankus is a multi-instrumentalist, composer, and scholar, and teaches improvisation and Jewish music at the New England Conservatory of Music. He is the founder and director of the Klezmer Conservatory Band, an internationally renowned Yiddish music ensemble. Hankus has previously taught Jewish music at Hebrew College and Wesleyan University and has lectured extensively in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. An author, ethnographer, curator, he's also worked with the Yiddish Book Center in the areas of education, oral history, and exhibition, and has performed numerous times at the center, both at Yidstock and throughout the center's history. Welcome, Hankus. Great to be here, Lisa. So, um, full disclosure, we're here we are at Yidstock, and we were just having this conversation on the fly, and I thought, if you could join me in the studio, it'd be great, because I wanted to pick up on this conversation. Um, first of all, thank you very much for two amazing lectures uh, yesterday and today. You're welcome. The crowd seemed very receptive. Yeah. And what was really interesting to me, and I'm just going to jump in on the conversation we were having, because I think I brought up Vivi Lax's book, mm-hmm. Whitechapel Noise, mm-hmm. and then you started talking about the person that I should know about, a musician. Right, Mayor Bogdansky. Yeah, expand on that. Well, um, Mayor Bogdansky was kind of the centerpiece of the Whitechapel Friends of Yiddish, uh, which was a, a, a group that met, I believe, once a month um, in Whitechapel and was a Yiddish culture club uh, and also uh, conversations in Yiddish, um, but also sharing songs and sharing um, memories and all kinds of things. Um, and it was it was the center of Yiddish life in London for many years. And of course, Whitechapel being the, uh, within the sounds of Bose Bells, which was the uh, the, the, the the basic uh, rule for being Jewish in London. Uh, that's where the Jewish community lived, and now uh, mostly a Pakistani community. Um, and um, he was much more than that. He was a Jew who had moved to London from Poland before the war, and he um, brought with him an incredible love of Yiddish folk song, Yiddish art song, Jewish folklore, Jewish music in general that could come from anywhere. For example, he was someone who listened to Bad Tchanis when he was a child, listened to the, the, the singers at the Jewish weddings. So he could do that. He could actually be a Badlin if you wanted him to. But then the next minute, he could be a folk singer. Then the next minute, he could imitate Boris Tomaszewski. Then the next minute, he could be singing a Yiddish art song. And in fact, his uh, repertoire was published um, the, the the Meyer Bogdansky song collection. I would hope you have a copy of that here, but if you don't, I'd be happy to copy it for you. Thank you. Um, and um, later on, he lived long enough so that he got to see the revival, the Klezmer revival. He got to see that revival spread to London as it did in the 1990s. And he was still around. Uh, I think he probably died in maybe around 2010 is my guess. What was his, just quickly, what was his reaction? He loved it. Yeah. He loved it. And he he was very, very willing to be anywhere that anyone needed him for as a mentor or teacher. It seemed like he was just 
without limits in terms of generosity. And he also was somewhat humble in a sense that he, he didn't get out on stage and perform all that much. Um, but he was recognized as a treasure in London, um, most prominently by Alex Knapp, uh, K-N-A-P-P, who was the leading Jewish ethnomusicologist of the London community. And uh, Alex had a chair at SOAS, the, uh, the, the School of uh, African Studies, African and Asian Studies. Um, and that is the uh, world music offshoot of City University of London. And um, Alex was, well, still is. I think he's still alive. But he, he is another person who simply loved Jewish music and if you look up Alex Knapp, you'll see articles about Schoenberg and you'll see articles about um, all kinds of aspects of Jewish music that you even wonder, like, why is he writing about this as Jewish music? But the beauty about Alex was he loved all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was really that very rare figure that was the complete Jewish music scholar and not a snob in any way. He was just, he was just remarkable. And we had – again, we don't have a figure to compare to him in this country. Um, and we don't have a figure, I don't think, to compare to Meyer Bogdansky in this country. London just had these two gems, uh, Alex Knapp and Meyer Bogdansky. And I remember being at a dinner at uh, University of London at City University when I was uh, – I, probably when I was interviewing for a position at SOAS actually at some point in the early 2000s. And there was Meyer Bogdansky at the dinner. And at one point, Alex said – we have Meyer Bogdansky with us, and perhaps he will do a song. <laughs> I, I mean, it was that simple, you know. And um, it was it was a beautiful thing because what I saw in London was this again because of Whitechapel Friends of Yiddish. I think they took themselves seriously, and they also took themselves. They also saw themselves as essential to the Jewish community. London has that kind of culture. You know, the other thing that, of course, is amazing in London is the synagogue choirs. And the synagogue choirs, for example, I mean, one cantor would outdo the other with these amazing, and these are Orthodox synagogues, Mm -hmm. with these incredible choirs that were professional musicians. Um, And it was a badge of great pride. It was a very different level in a sense than we see here where the synagogues are kind of there for the people you don't you don't have this formal choir and there's a way that Bogdansky was like part of every part of that kind of culture he, he I think what the beauty of this guy was that he could do the folk badchanis and really sound like a badchan but he could also sing an art song like a great classical singer that sort of for me, it's fascinating. It kind of picks up on the thread of your talk. Um, yesterday you spoke about Yiddish um, theater song, and today it was about art song, if I've got that correct. Um, and what's interesting and what prompted me to ask you the question about um, Vivi's book was that it felt like that was a moment in time where you had a music that had deep roots in the shtetl. You had a more cosmopolitan place that all of these people were transplanted to and it was that convergence and out of that convergence comes a new sort of form of music there's political protest in some of that music there's liturgy so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that well what happened is it was brewing in the Jewish community for 
a thousand years. And you did have this community that somehow was, I would say they were expressing themselves probably in all kinds of ways, but not in the ways of Europeans, not in the ways of what we'd call post-Enlightenment Europeans. They were expressing it in the Jewish community um, so that, as I said in my lecture yesterday, you know, it was the once-a-year day when Purim came. All of a sudden, everyone was an actor. Everyone picked up an instrument. You had plays because everyone was supposed to be so drunk that they didn't even know the difference. So you also had the wedding, and the wedding was a spectacle, and the wedding was a place where there could be an actor, namely a batlin, a a, 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 a a jester, a poet, who was basically freestyling based on the guests. Um, and the, the Chazin was a theatrical figure in a lot of ways, was somebody who, who was bringing the folklore together, bringing the prayers into a musical context. It was very deep. And the Chassidim, you have to definitely look at the Hasidim in this angle because they were writing symphonies. <laughs> they were writing incredibly complicated works that were spinning off of what they were hearing in the secular world. So you're asking, like, these people are hearing what's in the secular world? And the answer is, of course they were. And, of course, there was no prohibition against a Hasid hearing Mozart or Schubert or Schumann or any of these composers. But, in fact, if they wanted to be educated, they they listened. They went to concerts. They, they, um, you know, they 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 took that music in and then wove together their Hasidic version of it. So when you start getting, you know, when you start looking at the culture, and you start peeling the layers um, away from, for example, what we see now is as the mainstream Jewish culture, which is very simplified, very much something that is seen as let's make it so that. Everyone can do it. Let's just make it. It's got to be all participatory. It's got to be very simple. You realize that what you're neglecting is a period, which mostly is covered over, where the Jewish art forms took root. And what was so fascinating to me listening to your lecture was, and I don't know if it's the right word to attach to it, it's either a conceit in terms of how they took liturgical music and then moved it into the framework of art or theater music? Or was it just the natural sort of, again, evolution of this music which borrowed from something that was familiar and married it with something that was contemporary? Well, I think what you want to do is look at how much art there is both within, for example, the Hasidic movements, the Bobover Hasidic movement, the Mujitz Hasidic movement, these particular Hasidic movements that were focused in dialogue with European culture. So that, as I said, these composers in that, in that world would say, I'm writing a symphony. And if you listen, for example, to the Book Center's interview with Ben Sion Miller, the last half hour of that interview is entirely him singing those symphonies um, and, and, and illustrating what, what we're talking about. Uh, Herschelet Bacon, for example, the great, great composer for the Bob of Hasidim, who, who composed these incredible settings of, of uh, literature for, for Hallel, 
but it's like they're not songs. They're 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 like classical movements. And of course, the only people who would know them are every member of his congregation. Um, and then outside of that, it would be like, what are those people doing? Then you had, but then you had composers like Lewandowski and Sulzer in Vienna and Berlin, who were in dialogue, in direct dialogue with Schubert. Schubert was writing for their synagogue choirs, so. Um, you know, they were directly involved in creating art in the synagogue. What happens when you get to the late 19th century is you get the post-Haskalah Jews, so the Jews who are joining the Enlightenment, and they're finding common ground, in a sense, between the culture that has already been developed in the Hasidic world, in the cantorial world, all these things, but then they're finding a secular context for it. So it found an audience and it... it, it well, it found an audience in the concert in, hall in the theater. Right. Not the synagogue. No, yeah. Um, and in terms of symphonies, did people take them seriously? The Hasidim did. No one else heard them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's the amazing thing. They, they, There literally was no... For example, the Bacone pieces, it was interesting, they were passed down in oral tradition. But the first recording of Hasidic music in its element, the first recordings were not really done outside of three minute 78s. Mm-hmm. Remember, I mean, it's a very, very small medium to try to <laughs> put a symphony on. So outside of these folk songs, really short little ditties, I mean, you couldn't do much. Until Helen Stambler brings the uh, Hasidim into the studio in the late 1950s, early 60s. You know, they didn't even have permission. They had to get permission from the Rebbe's to record. So we start seeing what those pieces were. Unfortunately, what we get, I mean, it's not unfortunate, but it's, it's because the medium at that time has to sell records to a certain audience no, they don't just record the Hasidim. They record the Hasidim with arrangements and harmonized. And so so we get a vision of that that is, in fact, through an arranger's eyes, namely, usually Velvel Pasternak. Um, and he tells you about that. We have two interviews in the mm-hmm. archives of Helen Stambler and Velvel Pasternak, both talking about that moment uh, when Hasidic music is starting to be recorded, but it's very late. So... Um, so what you're hearing in the Yiddish theater and in Yiddish art song is oral tradition. And this may be a really embarrassingly silly question to ask you, but I'm going to ask you. So they go into the recording studio. What was the rationale behind giving them permission? I think that, um, again, there's a third figure here, Ben Sion Shanker, who was one of the composers of the music for the Mujits, uh dynasty. And what he said was... Um, So the rationale is fascinating. The rationale is fascinating. I mean, um, the Stamblers, uh, and uh, by that I mean um, both Benjamin Stambler and and Helen Stambler, I'm pretty sure it was Benjamin Stambler, um, her husband, um, were among a group of uh, cognoscenti, you know, Mm -hmm. in in the New York community who knew that you could go to a club on Saturday night or you could go to the Malave Malka at the Mujitsa Rebbe. In other words, Shabbos was over. You didn't have to be religious. You, didn't have, you weren't going to shul. Mm-hmm. But 
they knew that for three hours after Shabbos, people were going to be singing incredible music. And so these people who were not part of that community would simply go tag on and go into the Hasidic community. They weren't afraid to go into the Hasidic community. You see this now. You see, like, rabbis who won't go into the Hasidic Oh, my God, the political beliefs. It's like, hello, we're not collecting political beliefs. You know, no, you go into the Hasidic community because the culture is superior by far to the culture in the mainstream Jewish community. You just it, – it doesn't take much brains to hear in two seconds that they have a very – a much higher level of music in, in – in, or, or at least in the late 50s had a much higher level of music than what was seen in the mainstream community. So you go into the Hasidic community and you sit there and, you know, there was, you know, Benson and Shanker sitting in back of the Rebbe writing down every melody he sang – and there was Benjamin and Helen Stambler just sitting there taking it in. And at some point, Helen Stambler says, you know, why don't we record this? And her husband says, good idea. And they start something called Collector's Guild. And then they say to Ben Sion Shanker, hey, let's record this. And he says, well, we have to ask the Rebbe. And the Rebbe writes to the Mujitsa Rebbe in Israel to get permission. And what does the Mujitz Rebbe in Israel do? He waits a year. <laughs> it takes him a year to kind of, in his mind, work it out as to whether this is a good idea or not. Uh, but as soon as he decides that, this is in Ben mm-hmm. Sion's interview. I mean, it's a beautiful moment. It's so, it's so interesting. Um, and as soon as he decides, finally, we should get this music out. This is great music. This should be out there for the world. This should be out there for everybody. That's a big decision that that Rebbe makes. As soon as that Rebbe makes that decision, many other Rebbe's make that decision. Wow. And then in the 60s, we have this golden age of recording Hasidic music. Um, you know, if you want to see a complete collection of those recordings, just go to Josh Dolgan's apartment in <laughs> Montreal because he's, 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 my, he's probably the biggest collector of those. So we'll have to ask him about those. <laughs> you should. Yes, you should, should ask him. That would be a very important thing to ask him about because he is very inspired by especially a record called Nikoach, which is uh, the Chabad, the very first Chabad recording. Same, same people mm-hmm. doing it. Um, but it's all it's, – and, and, and by the way – I believe Mr. Stambler only lived another six or seven years. Um, I, I would have to go over Helen's interview, but I'm pretty sure her husband died very young. So as soon as he dies, which is something like 1967, no more Collector's Guild. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's it's a fairly short period, but he makes a lot of recordings. So it's monumental that the decision was made. The decision was incredible. And, and, yeah. and then they got street cred so that they would go – I mean, as she says in her interview, they, they would go to France and they'd go to a little synagogue in Provence and they'd go like, great music. This is great. Let's record it. <laughs> and we have permission. And we have permission. Yeah, no, it was, it was very interesting I mean, because everybody knew who they were. They could say, hey, look, we recorded Hasidim. Of course you should record your music. So they were, they were, they were incredible activists, yeah. those two. Um, so before I let you go, and I know I have to let you go, unfortunately, the question I guess I'd want to – wrap this up with is this seems really important in terms of having this understanding of how this transition um, for music that was rooted in the religious side of Jewish life. Although actually I take that back. Also this is music that 
was played, as you say, at weddings. It was military marches. It was everything. So you, you, and maybe I'm doing too much of a mishmash mashup. Um, we don't know a lot about this. Most of us. Is that safe to say? Yes. Okay. I mean, I just I'm did struggling look, with this question. As I you just can did tell. a week yeah. last week teaching Cantor's Hasidic music. So I'm pretty sure if they don't know no. it, then not that many people know it. But I guess the, here's the question, maybe in a simpler way. In the same way that I studied music history in high school, it was required, thank goodness. And it helped me to understand in the same way art history helped me to understand narrative arc. Yes. And it feels as though we need to know this because this does inform my understanding of the relevance of what the music we're hearing here at Yitzchak is or what I'm listening to at home. Um, and, yeah, sort of how it's made this jump from one place to another. Yes? Well, the answer is yes, and it has been systematically removed from Jewish education. So... Um, we need to figure out possibly how to put it back. Um, what I find is that most of the people who seem to be interested in this as an art form are not Jewish because they realize the music is really great, uh, whereas – so they're just studying it as interesting music. So when you approach that angle with that angle, you don't have any trouble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when you approach it in the, in the um, context of Jewish studies or – Jewish um, mainstream education, you have a big problem because what you have is you have a – there's an ideology there that basically started over at some point and wrote this out of history. So it's, so it's very tricky because we have a people who are supposedly known for passing things on to the next generation and we single-mindedly destroyed this. Um, which, I mean, it's, you know, obviously we had the Holocaust, so, so everybody will go, oh, yes, the Holocaust. No, 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 no. I don't remember a Holocaust here. Uh, I, 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 we, this was all going on. This all was still going on, could have been continued, could have been taught, could be part of Jewish studies, but isn't, by and large. Um, in certain places now, they have added Jewish music to Jewish studies, but what's being done is very, very limited. Uh, it tends to be focused on what's going on now. So um, it's very tricky. It's very tricky to do it. Um, and there are a few of us who grew up basically feeling like, well, we need to do it. And you'll get arguments and people will come and say, why? Why do that? Who cares about that? That's not important. What's important? And I'll be like, no. <laughs> so so there's, it's, it's a very small group. Um, the audience is huge. Mm -hmm. That's the amazing thing. So we find that we're very busy. <laughs> um, so the audience, and the audience, Jewish and non-Jewish, is very large. Um, and so um, – the the essential place of Jewish music in Jewish society has largely been forgotten, but it lives on during Yidstock here, definitely. It's a very, you know, very important festival in that way. It lives on at places like Class Canada. It lives on in various festivals around the world, like the Krakow Festival, and it lives on in certain synagogues. Mm -hmm. and lives on in certain festivals. It lives on generally as something that is a um, 
and in you know and in the phonoteca in Israel, for example. I mean, in certain archives, you 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 can find this, but it's a, it's it's very much on the side. Um, so, as people were asking me this morning, how can we do more than an hour lecture? How can we get more than a week long workshop? How can we do this? And I say, well, I mean, I teach at a school where I do full courses on this. Uh, it's a non Jewish school. If it was a Jewish school, they'd tell me to teach something else. So, <laughs> so it's 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 very tricky at this point. Um, you will hear the same sentiments that I'm expressing. You would have hear, heard them expressed by Ruth Rubin, who was our great ethnographer in the early part of the century. You would hear them expressed by Velvel Pasternak. You would hear them expressed by Ben Sion Schenker. You'll hear a lot of interviews, oral histories, Hannah Malutik. You'll hear this. And we each approach it in our own way. Uh, we know we have to do it. But the thing that tends to inform how we do it and how we feel about it tends to be reception. Um, I feel like reception is fine. So I'm very busy. I have a university. I have a conservatory position. Um, Ruth Rubin never had that. <laughs> she was very bitter about the Jewish community's attitude toward what she was collecting. Um, ben Sion Schenker probably the greatest Hasidic composer of the late 20th century. Different attitude. Like, they don't understand what I'm doing, you know, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, that's what you find. But, yes, it's very important, and we need to mobilize forces that are interested in it to make sure it happens more and more. Well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for the work that you do. My name is Tiernan Rosefield, and I'm a member of the Center's summer staff. For more of this podcast, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I recommend checking out episode number 16, a throwback that answers a question I get asked all the time. Why choose a goat as the logo for the Yiddish Book Center? Until next time, be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.